Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to New Ideal Live. I'm your host, Keith Lockich, and soon I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. And our topic for today is why you should read Atlas Shrugged or how reading Atlas Shrugged could change your life. Let's jump right in. So Ankar, uh, if you want to join us now. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Keith. Hi, Ron. Okay, so if I'm someone from anywhere around the world who's listening to this right now, and I've never read Atlas Shrugged before, let's imagine, you know, I've heard of the book. People have been telling me for years, you've got to read this book. Maybe I even have it sitting on my bookshelf, but I still haven't read it yet. Why should I open it up and read it right now? Why should I read Atlas Shrugged? The first point I would make is that it's a great story. So Atlas Shrugged is a novel. And it's a great novel. The story and the plot is very unusual, very intricate, but very logical. So it's a mystery story. And the whole book is the, from beginning to end, there's a whole bunch of mysteries that you encounter as the reader, like puzzling developments and the characters in the story are puzzled too. And part of the, what makes the novel powerful, compelling, is that it's a page turner. You want to find out when you finish one chapter, what's going to happen next. I remember when I read it. So I'm one of these people for whom it was life changing to read it. But I remember when I read it, it was in high school and I can still picture the couch that I would sit on. And it was for about three days. I wouldn't leave the couch just sitting. I mean, it's, it's a long novel, so it's a thousand pages, but it doesn't feel long once you get into it because it's a mystery story. So on the back, like I've, I have a copy of the, I think this is the centennial edition. And you know, the advertising of these kind of like books, movies is often really bad. <laughs> and like, you'll see amazing for the, and it's just like amazing dot, dot, dot. And if you read the <laughs> actual review, it's like amazing in its stupidity. <laughs> but, but they're, so they're trying to hook you by false advertising. The back of this book, I think is accurate. Part of what it says is, Atlas Shrugged is tremendous in scope, breathtaking in its suspense. It's unlike any other book you have ever read. It's a mystery story, not about the murder of a man's body, but about the murder and rebirth of man's spirit. Uh, close quote from the, the back cover of the book. And I think that is accurate. And that's, if I'm trying to sell someone on the novel, that I think is the first thing to say about how great a story it is. Yeah, people, People often talk about plot spoilers when it comes to works, movies or books or works of literature. And I think sometimes, you know, plot spoilers make a difference and sometimes they don't really make that much of a difference. This is one book where the, the, the suspense and the mystery that gets built up and, and gets resolved in the story, it, it happens in a way that, you know, I don't, I don't want to say too much about it because that in itself would be a plot spoiler. But when I read this book for the first time, not knowing how it would turn out, not knowing how the mysteries would turn out, and the way it all sort of comes together in, and the way that kind of mystery is resolved, I just remember that for me, that was the most satisfying literary experience I had ever had at that time and have ever had to date. Um, so just as a, as a literary experience, it's, it's unprecedented. And one of the things interesting about the mystery is there's really no red herrings in the story. So you can look back and if you were super perceptive, yeah, I could have figured this out. 
so that you get all the evidence to figure it out. But since the story is just so unusual and the ideas in the story are so unusual, I've never met a reader who's figured out the <laughs> of the story. But when you reread it a second time or the third time, you can see, oh yeah, there you have all the evidence that you could figure it out. Yeah. Now, just speaking of plot spoilers, we, you know, as, as, as I said at the beginning, our goal here is to encourage people who've never read the book to, uh, to read the book maybe for the first time. So we're going we're gonna to avoid giving away plot spoilers in the first part of today's podcast. We know that a lot of the people who, who uh, watch the New Ideal Live podcast are people who are fans of Ayn Rand. They've already read the book. And you may want to ask questions that do contain plot spoilers. So what we're going to do is the first part of this presentation, we're going to avoid spoilers. And, and we'll, when we start the Q&A, we'll start taking some questions um, and we'll try to avoid plot spoilers with those. And then if people have, have decided, okay, you've convinced me, I want to go read it, you can drop off and then we'll take questions with spoilers. So that's, that's how we're going to handle that today. Um, and I think it's, and again, I think it, it, it actually makes a difference with this book. If you haven't read the book, you want to try to avoid getting plot spoilers at all costs. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Atlas Shrugged, this is a book that was published in 1957, more than 60 years ago, and it still sells hundreds of thousands of copies a year. I think the most recent data says in the last couple of years, it's been selling around 250,000 copies a year. And this is really, this is unprecedented for a novel that's more than 60 years old. And I think this says something about its power as a literary work, just as a novel, as a story, that it continues to attract readers in droves. You know, this is by word of mouth, people saying, you've got to read this book, you've got to read this book. Um, and, but, but it's funny because you hear, one of the things, if you hear critics of the novel or critics of Ayn Rand uh, talking about it, one of the themes that you often hear, which I, I've never understood, is that they'll, they'll complain that she's not a good writer. So, I mean, what would you, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I have the same reaction to, as you, that it, it's baffling. It's like, what book did you read? Um, because, so they, it, it's often put as, she was just writing propaganda. So she, it's just speeches and so on to sell it and to make more people buy it, dress it up as it's a novel, it's a story. But it's exactly the reverse. It is first and foremost a story. And then if you think deeply about the story, the characters, the plot, there's a tremendous amount you can also learn from the book and we're gonna talk about that. But it's first and foremost a great story. And there's no way a book would continue to sell in the way that Atlas Shrugged sells and with many of her things, it's by word of mouth. It's people recommending. I bet many people in the audience who haven't read it, it's someone's told you, you know, you have to read Atlas Shrugged. So it's not like massive advertising campaign. It's word of mouth. And if the people's experience in reading the novel wasn't, this is a great story, they wouldn't be recommending to, to their friends and colleagues to read a thousand page propaganda novel. I mean, so, so that criticism uh, yeah, it's never made any sense to me. Yeah, and um, you know, I had a thought and I just lost it. Um, I was going to say something about reading. Um, what did it, anything I said that triggered it? I was talking about it as a. I got I got distracted by the chat thing. Okay. Um, 
Well, let's go on. I'll, I'll, I'll remember it at some point. So, yeah, come back. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, people might be put off by the, just the sheer length of the novel, you know, it's a, it is, a, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, so, so Atlas Shrugged, I mean, it's, it's a novel of ideas. So it's true, it's true that there are sort of philosophical speeches. Uh, they're not just inserted in a novel. They all, they all um, are, are serve a point in the plot and they naturally emerge out of the plot. But there are philosophical speeches. But Atlas Shrugged is a novel of ideas. And I think that might be something that people aren't necessarily used to reading today. But are there other, are you aware of other kind of works of literature where, where, where you have this kind of integration of ideas with, with the story, um, you know, so that, so it, it's not, it's not unprecedented in, in literature um, either that you have this kind of thing going on. I think probably the closest parallel in this regard and is a writer that Ayn Rand admired, Dostoevsky, where mm. it's, it's real stories, intricate plots, but the characters talk about their ideas and motivations in, and they're, uh, or at least some of them are real thinkers. So they have a perspective on life, different perspectives, which they can articulate. And Atlas Shrugged, there's something similar going on. So part of the conflict is because the characters who are in conflict have very different ideas, different views of life, and thinking about if you have this view of life, how do you actually act on it? How are you acting consistently or inconsistently on this view? And that's driving the action and the plot. And with Ayn Rand's novels, so this is true of The Fountainhead as well, it's the real conflicts are between the good characters who in some ways share a fundamental ideas in common, but have some different ideas and have different views about how you act consistently with these ideas. And part of the story is like, who's right about this? Who's wrong? But it, part of what is very, very interesting about Ayn Rand's novels, and I think makes them unusual, is there, there's tremendous conflict, but the essence of the conflict is not between good and evil characters. It's between good and good characters. So the, so the philosophical issues are part of the plot conflict is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's say I'm still not convinced. So great. It's a great novel. You know, maybe I'm not that, I don't, I'm not that interested in novels. I don't care if it's a great story. Why else should I read the book? <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, the first point, it's, it's a great story, mystery story. But the second is, why is it life changing? And for so many people, I mean, it is, it was for me, and indeed it changed my whole career that I went in to become, studying the humanities, become a philosopher. That's how much of an impact it had on me. But it's, you read many people um, who are sort of prominent in the culture, business people, actors, sports figures, who, when they're asked, like, what are some of your favorite books or formative experiences, they cite Atlas, the reading of Atlas Shrugged. And that's because it's tremendously inspirational. And inspirational in a way that I think very few things, other things in today's world, or even if you look through history, it's inspirational because it's focused on heroes. It's focused on good people, as we were just talking about, the real conflicts in the novel are between good characters. So you're immersed in a world that's dominated by the good and by people trying to achieve something. 
but who she upholds as this, these are heroic figures that you should think about and that should inspire you and you should think about building some of their traits into your own life, into your own person, into the, into the way you approach life. I mean, one of the things when she was writing the novel, and this was one of her best students at the time, asked her, you're writing a novel about where business people are the main characters? How is that going to be heroic? How is that going to be inspiring? And in effect, I think her answer was, wait and see. And when he read the novel, it's, oh yeah, this is tremendously inspirational. So one of the things she does is she paints the whole world of business, but even more broadly, of people who are creators, who are focused on building things, achieving things, whether it's on, an entrepreneur launching a new business, someone who's already operating in a business and, and making it 10 times greater than it was, uh, inventors, scientists, architect, I mean, artists, in this case, a composer, architect is the fountainhead. Um, it, it's, you've got this, this focus in the novel of people who are creators and achievers and what that really means in life. And it, it's, I think it has inspired, a, I mean, a real significant number of Americans to go on, particularly in America, because it's, I mean, when we're talking about the sales, up till a few years ago, it was largely in America, to inspire them to make something of their lives and to, that their lives can be great here on earth. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to stress how unusual the characters in the novel are. Well, and, and um, you hear from so many people who are entrepreneurs, whether at the, at the, you know, the, 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 the wealthiest people in Silicon Valley founding massive companies or small business people who just have a passion about uh, the business that they've created and the, and the value that they bring to the world. So many people will talk about how they were inspired by, by Ayn Rand's vision of what productive work is and what it means to produce and to create this is and 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 this isn't just she's trying to create these interesting characters who do this this is a this is deeply connected with, with her philosophical premises and with her whole perspective on you know what what's important in life and maybe we'll talk about this a little later uh, when we get to the next section but um yeah it's uh her view of what it looks like to achieve values and to be a productive individual is incredibly inspiring and it comes through in the novel. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if you think of sort of the conventional view, it's working is a grind, it's nine to five, I can't wait for the weekend. That, there's nothing like that in the novel. It's, it's so diametrically opposed to that, that it, you should think of work as one of the great aspects of your life. It's not don't become a workaholic and that's all you do but it should be central to your life and if approached properly can be tremendously fulfilling and that i know many people um, who have sort of changed their whole orientation towards work because of the novel um i, I had a friend in high school my best friend in high school who it took me about a year to convince to read at the shrug and it was partly i think i was selling it in the wrong way it was i was emphasizing the ideas and thought not like this is a great story if you yeah. read the first 100 200 pages you won't be able to put it down so it took me 
a year, but I was in physics, engineering, he was as well. And it was like, what's a novel? Like, how good can it be? And, so, and it took me about a year to convince him. And then when he read it, it was, why didn't you tell me to read this? <laughs> and it, you could see, I could see the effect it had on him of, he wasn't really thinking of uh, work as so central in life. And, so, and he too reoriented, went on to a career in tech and, and loved his job and so on. And that's part of the sort of inspiration that the novel can give me. I, I, I don't want to let this go. I know we're trying to, we're trying to sell Atlas Shrugged today, but it, but the Fountainhead also has this inspirational quality, and and it's you, it's in, in particular this, the one character, Howard Rourke, architect, and you just see the passion for his work, and there are scenes where that show how he's drawn to his work, and you see she, she it's incredible that she can have the scene is somebody sitting at a at a desk drawing, you know, so it's not there's not a lot of dramatic action going on, but through the way it's described, you just you see the you see the passion for it and one of the scenes in that novel is specifically deals with the kind of inspiration that people can get there's a famous scene with a boy on a bicycle who who meets Howard Rourke and who sees what he's created as an architect this architectural project that he's built and and she talks about how um, you know the kind of inspiration that that can have um, it's a very moving scene if you want to read the fountainhead as well we'll sell that one as well <laughs> And what they share in common, and one of the ways that Ayn Rand put how she thinks of herself as a novelist is that she's presenting what's possible in life, but a new vision of what is possible. And that's the inspirational aspect. It's many people, I didn't think this was possible. I didn't think I could go on to do this. I didn't think it, the risk would be worth it. And it's, that's part of the inspiration that they take from it. And it's, it's in significant part because it's an artistic depiction. So it's not just like reading about some real life hero. It's a vision of what the world could be like if people were dedicated to what is in fact the ideal. Yeah. So I noticed that we have some hands raised and we have a bunch of people putting questions in the chat module. Um, let me just say that if you uh, if you want to ask questions, you want to participate in the discussion, please use the Q&A module in Zoom, or if you're on YouTube, use the Super Chat feature. Um, those are the best ways to get the questions through. And um, so before we switch to the Q&A, though, I think there was one last aspect that we wanted to talk about in terms of why, you know, if you haven't read Atlas Shrugged, you know, it's and, and you... Uh, so you're convinced that it's probably a good story and that it's very inspirational. Is there something else that we can say to uh, encourage people to, uh, to read it? Yeah, and this, this goes to what you brought up before, that it is a novel of ideas. It's not propaganda. It's not dry uh, uh, philosophic treaties disguised as a story. It's first and foremost a story, but it's a story about ideas and the clash of ideas. And Ayn Rand's a radical thinker. Many, many things that she has to say are new. You will never have encountered this before. You'll never have heard of this before. So one of, if, if, you're, if you like that experience, if you're not a conventional person who whatever's in the mainstream is good enough for me. If, you're, if you want, if you're a person who likes to challenge yourself, push yourself, 
confront ideas that you haven't encountered before, think if they're right or wrong. You can't pick up a better book than Atlas Shrugged in order to do that. The, I mean, there's so much that she's asking you to challenge and question. We touched on one aspect of that, how most people think of work, sort of the conventional mainstream view and the book and the story ask you to rethink that. It's like, am I right about this? The whole issue of good and evil, of morality, it's asking you to rethink. It's, it's one way to, uh, to put the story is that the, the evil characters in the story are acting on what's considered moral. So what conventionally is considered right, and they're pursuing that to its full extent. And it's shown in the novel to be, look, this is enormously destructive. And so the novel's asking you to rethink your moral ideas of what you hold as good and what you hold as evil. And one of the ways that that's put, I, I mean, you can talk a little bit more about this, Keith, is that she's presenting in Atlas Shrugged and then in her later nonfiction writing, a new idea about what selfishness is, that we've, that the conventional way of thinking of this is all wrong and it's disastrous because it leads you to um, not live the life that you could live and that is worth living. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the title of one of her nonfiction essay collections is The Virtue of Selfishness. And, she, and her, she, the subtitle is that it's a new concept of egoism. What she's doing is she's, she's saying that the way we think about this concept is fundamentally mistaken because it puts together the idea of pursuing your own self-interest and pursuing you know, your values in life. And it lumps that together with the conventional idea that we have that a selfish person is someone who's, who exploits others and preys on others and has no regard for others. And by putting those two things together, it's, it's a distorted, mistaken idea of what it means to be concerned with your own self-interest. So she's saying the whole way we think about morality in that way is just wrong. Um, I, I always found it kind of ironic that people will, people who don't like her, and she has a lot of critics and a lot of people, there are a lot of people out there who don't want you to read her. And you'll see articles that are clearly designed to say, oh, don't waste your time with this, right? And they'll, one of the things they'll criticize her for is for advocating selfishness. And uh, it's, it, what's funny is that it's clear that in saying that, they take it as obvious that selfishness is bad because they're relying on this conventional idea that we have that selfishness necessarily means disregard for others and preying on others and exploiting others and trampling on other people. So obviously anybody who advocates that can't be a good person. Uh, so there's a certain irony that they're, they're attacking her for advocating selfishness, completely disregarding the fact that she goes to incredible lengths to say, look, we're mistaken about what this concept actually means. And what it actually refers to is pursuing your values, pursuing your happiness in life in a way that's completely harmonious with other people doing the same thing. Um, I've, I've always found that ironic. Yeah, and it's a good point in the, about the critics because it's really true that the critics are trying to dissuade you from reading the novel so they portray it in a way that is completely in, inaccurate. Because if they told you what was really in there, a lot of people would pick it up. Um, 
And, it, and that's the sense in which it sells itself. It sells itself by word of mouth. When someone reads it, it's typical, typically, it's, they tell other people, yeah, you should read this, this is a really powerful book. And it's, in thinking of it as a novel of ideas and that they will challenge your views. Another way that the novel's portrayed, which is not true, is that it's only about capitalism and economics. Now, it has a real economic aspect to it, but not in, again, the sense of thinking of it as propaganda or a textbook. You're not going to have supply and demand curves in the novel. And, and it's like it's, it's the, a bunch of bankers debating what economic policy should be or something. Like that. That's not what it is. It has an aspect that is tied to capitalism, to production, to work, to the nobility of business and of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial creation when it's done properly. But it's, it has, it's, that's an aspect of deeper issues in the novel and particularly the issues about good and evil. One of the, the major issues that runs through the novel and had a big impact on me when I first read it is the, it, in the novel it's put as a soul body it's more often put as mind body sort of outside of Atlas Shrugged. It's that you face this, this sort of um, choice that is that you don't know what to do. So you have this choice that both sides seems really bad. You can side with the sort of soul spiritual side of life. You can be an idealist, care about values and morality, but then you're going to be completely impractical. You won't be able to succeed in the world and so if you want to succeed, if you want to make money and so on, you have to abandon ideals, values, the spiritual side of life. So this is why it's a dichotomy. It's a soul-body dichotomy, a mind-body dichotomy, that you're, you face this issue of being pulled in different directions. And it seems like you're always giving up a real part of life. Side with the spiritual, ignore the material world, or side with the material world and don't have any real values. Um, and this, so this issue what the story's arguing this is a deep issue it's not just about money say it's it's uh, uh atlas shrugged among other things is a tremendous love story and this issue of love should be platonic if you're it's idealistic and so on it's one side if you're interested in sex and so on that's material low degrading um and it's again one or the other Atlas Shrugged is challenging that whole view about how to think about life, that if you have a proper conception of the spiritual and a proper conception of the material, they go together, but you have to rethink both issues. And the, to say that it's a novel of ideas and the ideas are driving the story, one of the central characters in the novel is played by a mind-body dichotomy or soul-body. He thinks of it as yeah, I've got to choose one or the other. And you see the impact that it has on his life. And you see why he starts to rethink this issue and think, maybe I'm wrong about this. And what would be the right approach? And, and it drives the whole story. And this is the way in which the ideas are intricately, intricately connected to the story. It's not, okay, the story, then you get a pause and characters talk about ideas for a chapter and then you're back to the story. They're so intertwined. And this is what the, the novel is inspirational, but it's also challenging. And that's another significant reason why to read it. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many more things we could say about, you know, how the ideas in the novel will challenge your views, but we've got a lot of questions here. So why don't we, why don't we just summarize? So if you're, again, if you're somebody who's never read the book before, read it for the story, read it for the inspiration, read it to challenge your views. And, uh, you know, if you do read it, let us know what your experience is like. We'd love to hear from you. So I think, why don't we, why don't we take some questions now, Ankar? What do you think? Yeah, We've got good. a lot of, uh, uh, there's one here we can answer quickly. It says, is it true that Ayn Rand dedicated Atlas Shrugged to Aristotle? Um, no, I don't think, I mean, there's a dedication page in the novel and it's not dedicated to Aristotle. She did acknowledge a debt to her. She said that her, her, her primary philosophical debt is to Aristotle because he was the, um, uh, the, the, the philosopher in history with whom she had the most agreements um, and who, from whom she learned the most. Um, but the novel is not dedicated to her specifically. There's an implicit way in which you can, she pays homage to Aristotle. So, so it's certainly not dedicated, but I've got the, I don't know if people can see this, I've got the table of contents and the book is divided into three parts. And the parts are non-contradiction, either or, and A is A. And those three are principles in Aristotle's philosophy. And from Ayn Rand's perspective, I think she thinks these are his greatest contributions to philosophy, that, to get that this is the base of reasoning and logical thinking. So there is there's an implicit, I mean, there's no way she would have named that like that absent her deep, deep admiration for Aristotle. Okay, let me also say here that if you have, if you're, if you're listening in the Spanish translation and you have a question, you can type the question in the Q&A module in Spanish and Agustina will help us by translating it for us. So feel free to ask questions in Spanish if you want to. Um, yeah, she's saying she has a couple of questions. Oh, okay. Are we do other are, are there ones to take now, Augustine? Um, yeah, so we have a question. Uh, it says, "Why do you think Ayn Rand didn't write any more fiction after Atlas Shrugged?" I mean, for me, the short answer is it's pretty hard novel to top. So, <laughs> do you have more to say, Ankar? Yeah, I think she said at least two things about that. And one is in the vein of what Keith said, that it's she, she so she has an essay, which is up on our website, einrand.org, the campus side, of the, called The Goal of My Writing. And the goal of her writing, she said, what she as a fiction writer is trying to do is portray her vision of the ideal man or the ideal human being, the ideal individual. And she viewed that as the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged as having achieved that. So in the Fountainhead, it's the character of Howard Rourke. In Atlas Shrugged, there's a few characters who I think she would put into the category of these are visions of my ideal. And one of the things she said is uh, sort of I fulfilled that vision. I could keep repeating and they're not carbon copies of each other. So she could give a further variants of this, but her essential goal, I think, was complete with Atlas Shrugged. But the second sort of more depressing issue is she was a writer who wrote for her time, not only for her time, but she's not a writer who writes, situates stories in the distant past, in the Middle Ages or the Roman Empire, even though she admired some stories that were like that. But her as a writer, she's not going to do that. 
And she found the world by the time of the 70s as so uninspiring and um, sort of the, uh, I don't know the right adjective, sort of grimy that the events were not large scale enough. She said the last person she could take seriously as a thinker was Marx. So that's already going back into the 19th century. She can't take these modern thinkers very seriously. So to write about it, it was just too uninspiring to her. Um, and she was planning a novel by the sort of end of her life, she started planning a novel and you can find some notes in the journals, but it's, she, I don't think she could ever bring herself to have the kind of inspiration that she had in writing the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged in the world of the, the late 60s, early 70s. And I think she, she turned to nonfiction writing and giving talks and speeches. And I think she enjoyed that to some extent. She enjoyed um, communicating uh, you know, her ideas explicitly uh, rather than implicitly in the, in the form of the novel. So Yeah, that's, that's important too. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, go ahead, Agustina. We have two questions from one from Diego, one from Guido in Spanish that um, are very similar. So you were talking before about selfishness and this misunderstanding of Ayn Rand's notion of selfishness. And uh, they're asking, why is it that rational selfishness and this person calls it the irrational selfishness are confused? Is it because of Nietzsche or any or some other hedonist? I mean, I, I, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the reason that Ayn Rand, so Ayn Rand talks about this issue in the introduction to her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. And I think her view is that it's ultimately, it's the influence of the morality of altruism. There's a sort of Judeo-Christian tradition in ethics um, emphasizes that the duty to sacrifice for the sake of others. And it creates a sort of false alternative that either you're a good person and you sacrifice for the sake of others, or if you don't want to do that, the only other, the only alternative is to be somebody who preys on other people. Um, you know, so it's either sacrificing other people to yourself or sacrificing yourself to others. And, and um, the idea that this is a false alternative is just, is, is, is something that is not, um, is and I think Nietzsche represents to some extent that that flip side of the alternative. So I don't think I don't think it's that Nietzsche created that perspective. It's sort of a it's a natural false alternative that comes out of that whole moral perspective. And if you think of why sort of there's a vested interest in presenting it as a false alternative. So it's to, to use sort of American figures, it's okay, you need to be like Mother Teresa. And if you say like, why? I don't wanna live in poverty and give up all my stuff. It's, well, you're gonna be Al Capone? And Al Capone's a gangster who exploits people. And so, and it's, no, I don't wanna be Al Capone. So I guess I have to be something like Mother Teresa. So altruism has a vested interest in presenting the alternatives like that because it makes the altruist alternative seem Okay, yeah, that may seem reasonable if the alternative is Al Capone. Yeah, and, and, and in the Fountainhead, the way she puts it is it's, you're offered the alternative between sadism and masochism, you know, and, it, and, and she calls it the greatest fraud ever perpetrated on mankind in, in the Fountainhead. She describes it that way. Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge we got a, we got a, 
support in the super chat. Um, I don't know if we got the if we saw the name, but uh, there was no question. Just just uh, uh, monetary support. So thank you for the person who who did that. Or for John, uh, thank you for for posting that. Um, okay, just looking at the Q and A, we got lots of questions here in the Q and A module. So some somebody is asking. Sam is asking. Is is Atlas Shrugged the first work of Ayn Rand's that you should read? he or she should read or, or should we save it until other books have been read? Um, I have a, I, I, I think that it's, it's uh, helpful to read The Fountainhead and then Atlas Shrugged, but you know, you may disagree with that, Ankur. I mean, I often, if someone asks me this where I can interact with the person a little bit, try to find a little bit what interests them. So Atlas Shrugged is this grand scale novel. It's a vision of, human civilization and what it takes, what build it, what can undermine it. The Fountainhead, as Keith said earlier, is a very personal, uh, smaller scale, but still super interesting story. But it's at the level of you're focused on one individual and the story revolves around him. And if that's, uh, there's many people I think, yeah, the fountainhead is the first thing because that resonates with them and the kind of issues of independence versus dependence. What does it mean to not follow the crowd? And so that resonates with them. For me, I'm glad I read Atlas Shrugged first because I was more thinking about sort of the grand scale issues and Atlas Shrugged really connected to me with me because of that. So I think it's one of Atlas Shrugged or the Fountainhead to start with. Well, I'll tell you, my, so my story is a little different because my, uh, I was about 15 and my brother had read them and he was all excited about them. So I knew I was going to read them. And my mother, who's the one who recommended, she actually said, you know, it'd be really interesting to read the novels, read Ayn Rand's novels in the order that she wrote them. So you can kind of trace her development as a writer. So I actually read her novel, We the Living, first, which is highly unusual. Most people don't even, you know, don't even get to that till years later. So I read, I read We the Living, then her novel at Anthem, then The Fountainhead, then Atlas Shrugged. And I have to say that progressing through them in that way and just seeing the, the, the expansion in the depth of her thought. I mean, by the time I got to Atlas, it was, I think it was even more of a mind-blowing experience reading that novel because I was already impressed at the stage of We the Living. <laughs> um, you know, I, I already liked her as a writer then. And then when you go through The Fountainhead and Atlas, it's really... That it was a, it was a life changing experience for me too. Sam is also asking, are there helpful guides to reading Atlas or discussion groups? Um, there is a there is a spoiler free chapter by chapter uh, discussion that's available on our website on campus on campus, on campus It's called the Atlas Project, and this was a so this was a year long project where where people went through the book. Um, chapter by chapter and, and sort of analyzed the, 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 the meaning and the, talked about the characters and talked about plot developments without giving away plot spoilers. So if you're interested in following it along as you read it, uh, that could be something you look for. I also have a teacher's guide to that, but this does contain plot spoilers, but at the end, there's chapter by chapter, some questions and things people, the readers can think about. So you could pick that up as well, but you have to not look at the first half. 
Um, okay, I'm just looking at other, we have so many questions here. I'm just trying to. Yeah, as you look at that. General interest. Yeah, go ahead. Up we the Living reminded me of one thing that I wanted to say about sort of why, if you haven't read the novel, why to read it, is that We the Living, as Keith was saying, Ayn Rand's first book and Atlas Shrugged, the, her last book, central characters uh, are Kira Argunova and We the Living and Dagny Taggart and Atlas Shrugged. It's rare to find a novel with uh, female characters so central to it and so inspirational and inspirational in a non-conventional way. So she, just as in almost every area of life, Ayn Rand is unconventional, her views are unconventional. Her view of what is possible to women is particularly if you think at the time is enormously unconventional. Yeah. So somebody asked uh, whether Dag whether the character of Dagny Taggart is in some way an Ayn Rand's alter ego or something like that. Um, I I mean I think it it's her it's her only portrait of an ideal woman. So the the if we leave aside Anthem, which is a novelette, there's Kira, but Kira is a young woman you don't see her grow fully into uh, adulthood. So in that sense, it's still, it, it's not, I mean, it's too strong, but it's a promissory note about what the ideal could be. Um, whereas in Dagny, you see a fully developed person uh, and a fully developed woman. So it, it, I think she viewed it as this is my first and only depiction of an ideal woman. And this, this, there's a book, Who is Ayn Rand, uh, by Nathaniel Brandon, an essay by Barbara Brandon. It's a biographical essay. And that point is made there that Dagny's the only, her only depiction of an ideal woman. Um, so we have a question, how long did it take for Ayn Rand to write the novel, which reminds me that I wanted to, about something else that I wanted to say. So it's the so she I, she published the fountainhead in 1943 and not too long after that she started thinking about what her next novel would be and then it was published in 1957 so this is a good 12 13 years she's working on the book but um so we we wanted to do this broadcast today on september 2nd part of the reason we wanted to do that is we we you know people who are fans of ayn rand think of september 2nd as atlas shrug day and the reason for that is that the date September 2nd comes up a lot in the novel. Um, and it's not because there's anything too earth shatteringly significant about it, but it's because September 2nd was the day she actually sat down and started writing the novel. So she did, a, she, her method of, of, plan, of writing her novels was to spend a lot of time planning and preparing and making copious detailed notes about the characters and the plot and kind of working the whole story out in her mind and figuring out what, you know, what the basic arc of the story was and the characters. And then she would sit down and start writing. And on her, on the manuscript, uh, we, you know, in, in, our, in the Ayn Rand Institute archives, we have the original manuscripts uh, of her writings. And you see on the first page of the first day of writing Atlas Shrugged, September 2nd, I think it's 1946 was the day she started writing. So that's why, uh, that, that's the significance of the date. Um, 
Right. I have a couple questions in Spanish, but they contain spoilers. So we may want to hold on a little more. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're about halfway through the question period. We've been going for about 45 minutes here. So why don't we draw a line here for the people who have, if you've never read the novel before and you don't want to get any plot spoilers, um, we won't be offended if you hang up now, say goodbye, and, and you know, run immediately to your bookshelf or the bookstore and, and start reading the novel. Um, I hope if you do that, that you find it to be a, a, the, the same kind of incredible literary experience that those of us here, you know, who are talking about this experience when we read it for the first time. So enjoy it. And we hope to hear from you if you, if you do enjoy it. So now, uh, let's see, did we get any people hanging out? We got a few people hanging up. That's good. <laughs> um, so now why don't we turn, so for the last, you know, 15 minutes or so, we can take questions that, that uh, do include plot spoilers. Um, so go ahead, Agostina. Okay, we have a question here. Do you think productive businessmen in Latin America should eventually rebel against collectivistic society and stop producing, much like in the novel? No. I mean, as a short answer, and then let me expand on it a little bit. She was often asked this question, should I go on strike? Should we go on strike? And one of her answers is, was take literally what's meant literally in the story and don't, but not everything in the story is meant literally. So the novel is about a strike and it, I mean, the whole novel really is about a strike. That's the central line of action from beginning to end. And she said what th th the way to think about that in today's world is you have to go on strike against the dominant ideas and you have to oppose those ideas. You have to learn the new ideas and then actually advocate, stand for them, advance them. So her last speech was to businessmen. So the last speech before she died. And she was urging them to stop supporting ideas that are actually anti-business, anti-production, anti-life. And one of the major ways they do it is to give money to universities, to the alma maters and so on, where the universities in essence are pushing out Marxist, collectivist, anti-reason, mystical ideas, particularly in the humanities. And so she, she thought, yes, there's, you should change your actions in all kinds of ways if you come to agree with the story, its meaning, and the new ideas in it. But the, the way to translate that into action is not to sort of blindly copy the people in the story, well, they go on a strike, so I'm going to go on strike. It's rather, as she put it, to go on strike against mainstream ideas in the name of better ideas. Um, and that, I think, I mean, I wish businessmen in Latin America did that. I wish more businessmen in the U.S. did that. I mean, speaking of businessmen in Latin America, it's worth mentioning that one of the heroes in the novel is someone from Argentina, so <laughs> whose family is originally from Argentina, so... Um, and he's one of the greatest characters in, in literature, I think. But anyway, so we have a super chat question from Shazbot. I don't know if that's your real name or just your online name. But uh, so the question is, if John Galt's struggle had been won three generations earlier, 
Now, the question is asking, would Fred Kinnan have turned out differently? Fred Kinnan is the kind of labor leader who, who kind of, um, he's, he's one of the bad guys. But the question is, is he just a product of the time he lived in? Um, so. I don't think so. But it's, it, it's, one has to think, what does it mean that he's a product of his time? What does it mean that someone is a product of his time? One thing that can mean, I think this is what the question is thinking, the questioner is thinking about, is he conforms to what's around him. And in that sense, this kind of blind, unthinking conformity is bad. That is from the perspective of Atlas Shrugged and the perspective of Ayn Rand, it's bad. It is true that, um, if you're in a better society and you're a conformist, you on average will conform to better things. And so you seem like a more respectable, upright citizen. And if you live in a worse world and a more evil world and you're conforming to it, your actions will be more evil. This is one of the things that people, that, that haunts them about Nazi Germany. It's a lot of the people are conformists in Nazi Germany, and it's they wouldn't have come up with uh, the final solution and we're going to exterminate the Jews and so on. But they conformed and they went along with what was happening in Germany. They conformed to what the, the world around them. And the essence in moral terms of the evil is the conformity. It's to not think for yourself, not judge. If it's good enough for other people, it's good enough for me. And, but there are differences then in kind of existential action and what you do, depending on what your society is like. And so it is true that Keenan's not the worst of the villains and even not the worst of the conformists. Someone later in the novel, like a Cuffy Meggs is also, he'll chisel out a living of the way the world is. Everybody's got to make a living. I'm going to do this. He's much more of a gangster type than Keenan as the labor leader is. Though, there, I mean, if you, and you, if you think of le labor, it already leans towards so, uh, um, the gangster type. So there is a difference, but it's not a significant difference. I think. So we're getting close to the end of our time here. I, I, one thing I do, one thing we do like to do is we're trying to find out whether we're reaching a new audience, especially with today's uh, podcast. We wanna see if we're reaching people who are fairly new to Ayn Rand's ideas. I, realized, I just realized I should have done this before we let all the people go who never read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> that would have been good. But I want to do a little poll here. So if you're in Zoom, um, I just launched the polling question. We want to just let us know what's your familiarity with Ayn Rand's writings and ideas. Um, just go to the polling module. It should pop up and you can, you can do that. We'll, and we'll just keep that up while we take the last couple of questions here. Um, I think there's a question from Victor in the Q&A module that I think is relevant to what we've been talking about the whole time, um, which is how do you assess the impact of Atlas Shrugged on American culture? So we've talked about how people draw a lot of inspiration from it. You know, it's a great story. It challenges people's ideas. Um, but, and, and we, I think it's safe to say that it's had an enormous impact on American culture. It shows up all, I mean, the fact that it's, that, that, that she's still, talked about and discussed and and her ideas are discussed you know all from everywhere from the university campuses to congress you know 
speaks to her impact. Um, but is can can you say? Do you want to, Ankar? Can you say something about your your sense of just the impact that she's had overall in culture? I'll put two aspects, both of which I think are enormously significant. So I think of Silicon Valley partly as inspired by Atlas Shrugged and the vision of Atlas Shrugged. And some of its early founders and so on have spoken favorably about Atlas Shrugged. And if you think of Silicon Valley, of this, of, uh, of, a, of a group of people, enormously entrepreneurial, willing to challenge the status quo, willing to create, build, like, eager to create and build a new vision of what is possible. That is, this is part of what Atlas Shrugged is about and it's part of what is so inspirational about it. So I think in the world of business and particularly on the more entrepreneurial side of creating the new, of venturing out into the new, she's had a tremendous impact. And then sort of more culturally, politically, and thinking of the nation as a whole, it was common to talk about in the 70s and leading into the 80s and with the, the election of Reagan as there was a swing to the right in the country, that, they had, that Americans had become fed up with the policies of the liberals, of Kennedy, Johnson, and even of Nixon, who was in a, in a real pragmatist, didn't really have any principles, and he certainly couldn't paint any vision of what was possible. A swing to the right was, we've got to return to more of the founding ideals of America, more to its business and entrepreneurial spirit, more to freedom. And one of the things people talk about in regard to Reagan, now she was not a fan of Reagan, but what people talked about of what Americans were responding to Reagan is that he painted a more moral, idealistic picture of America, a shining city on a hill, that you should think of business capitalism as in somewhat moral terms. And there's other thinkers like that, a Milton Friedman who was popular and so on, and is viewed as having a little bit of a moral backbone that moral backbone, I think, comes from Ayn Rand. Absent her, and in particular Atlas Shrugged, you would not have seen this in America. And it had a real impact on the country. And his willingness to cast moral judgment on the Soviet Union and call it an evil empire, that was something that nobody was willing to do. And, it, and, it, and you know, even if it wasn't very much, it still was shocking to people and, and impactful. Yeah. Okay, well, we just have about two or three minutes left. Um, and I think there's a, we could answer this question in an hour or we could answer it in a sentence or two. So why don't we take, try to do the sentence or two version of what aspects of, this is from Will, what aspects of Rand's philosophy are most relevant in 2020? <laughs> I would say all of them, <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, if you, if you think of part of the world as what's happening is we're descending into tribalism uh, so factions at war with each other, no one advancing arguments, no one thinking about the individual. It's only what group do you belong to and are you hitting, is your group big enough to hit other people over the head with? Ayn Rand paints a vision that you as an individual can be an individual if you think for yourself, if you get a morality 
that emphasizes the pursuit of happiness, not your life belongs to other people and you have to serve other people. Uh, a life of freedom, that this is possible if you rethink your ideas. And that, like, what could be more uh, needed than that today? Here, here. Okay, well, I think um, we are basically at time here. So let me say thank you to our wonderful interpreter who has been doing a fantastic job, I understand, uh, translating this into Spanish. Thanks, Agustina, for helping us out with all of this. And thank you, thank you. to all of you for uh, joining us today. Um, we hope this is slightly different from our usual topic or format, you know, uh, try to be a little more inspirational celebrating Atlas Shrug Day today. Um, so um, again, thank you all for coming. And, and, you know, even if you are someone who has read it before, maybe now's a good time to reread Atlas Shrug. So thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time. Gracias. Ciao. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.